Hello, everyone. My name is Wendy Fenton, and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network at the Humanitarian Policy Group here at ODI. And I'd like to welcome you all to this session. Uh, today, we're going to explore SOS Sahel UK's localization journey, which included the whole scale transfer of power, resources, and assets to national NGOs rooted in civil society in Sudan, Ethiopia, Mali, and Niger. And we'll be discussing the challenges and successes of SOS Sahel's journey and trying to draw out valuable lessons for localizing humanitarian action. Margie Buchanan-Smith, who's the author of the new HPN Network paper, which documents and analyzes this journey, will start us off by giving a brief presentation on the paper. And this will be followed by a short video of Saleh Abdelmajid Al-Douma, who's the executive director of SOS Sahel Sudan. And he'll reflect on both the challenges and opportunities encountered during this journey. Then we'll hear from Fayera Abdi, the executive director of SOS Sahel Ethiopia, and Mary Allen, formerly with, S with Sahel Echo in Mali, about their experiences and perspectives. And then we'll open the floor for your questions and comments. But before I introduce the panel, I just need to take care of a couple of housekeeping issues. So first of all, French interpretation is available during this webinar. So please click on the globe icon at the bottom of the screen to listen to this event in either French or English. So you need to click on that globe regardless of which language you are listening on so that you can click on it. And we also have closed captions available in English. So please click on the closed caption button at the bottom of your screen if you'd like to use this feature. And then once we've heard from the panel, We'll open up the floor and invite you to ask the panel questions or add your own reflections. And if you'd like to speak, please raise your hand on Zoom. And you can do this by clicking on the reactions button at the bottom of your screen and selecting raise hand. But please do wait for me to call on you before you unmute your microphone and switch on your camera if you'd like to. And you can also add comments to the chat box if you'd rather not uh, speak. So it's now my pleasure to introduce you to all of our panelists. So first, I'm delighted to welcome Margie Buchanan-Smith, who has over 30 years of experience working in the humanitarian aid sector uh, as a policy researcher, practitioner, evaluator, and coach, focusing on food security issues, especially early warning and humanitarian information systems, supporting livelihoods and trade in conflict contexts, and migration. Margie's geographical area of expertise is the Horn of Africa, especially Sudan and South Sudan. And she's been on the board of a number of NGOs and was a trustee of SOS Sahel during the transformation process. Margie is now a senior research associate at ODI, a visiting fellow at the Feinstein International Center at Tufts University, a fellow of the Rift Valley Institute and the chair of ELRA's board of trustees. And although he's not able to join us in person today, we're very pleased to hear by video from Saleh Abdelmajid Elduma, as I mentioned earlier. As Saleh has held the post of executive director for SOS Sahel Sudan since 2009. And he previously worked for Oxfam GB for 17 years in Darfur, Khartoum and Sudan wide, and in the UK holding a number of different positions including deputy director, interim country director, and country director in Sudan. And Saleh also served as a country director for Oxfam America in Sudan before joining SOS Sahel. 
And we're also fortunate to have with us today in person, actually, Fayara Abdi, who's a senior development professional with 38 years of research and development experience in Ethiopia. Uh, Fayara has been the executive director of SOS Sahel Ethiopia since 2007. And for 12 years prior to that, he was the country director of SOS Sahel UK in Ethiopia and led the process of transforming it into an Ethiopian national NGO. Fayara serves as a board chair, founder, and board member of a number of civil society organizations and regional networks. And last, but certainly not least, we welcome Mary Allen, a development practitioner with over 35 years of experience working with rural communities and development organization, organizations in the Sahel. Uh, she's lived and worked in Mali since 1986, apart from a recent four-year stint in Senegal with Practical Action. Mary was recruited by SOS Sahel in 1994 to lead the Bankas Environment Project, becoming country director a few years later, and then executive secretary of Sahel Eco until 2013. Today, Mary works part-time from her home in Bamako. So welcome everyone. Uh, we're delighted to have you all. And I'm now going to hand over to Margie, who's going to talk about the paper. Margie, over to you. Great, thank you very much. Um, and I'm just gonna share my screen here. So hopefully, can I just check if everyone can see? Wendy, can you see <clears throat> that? Yes, can see that. Okay, great, there we go. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and I'm just going to say a little bit about SOS Sahel for those of you less familiar with it. Um, it's a development NGO dating back to 1983 when it was set up focused on natural resource management in the drylands of the Sahel, starting in Sudan, but rapidly expanding to Ethiopia, Mali and Niger, and briefly had a presence in Kenya and South Sudan. In some ways, it was structured according to the conventional INGO model of the time. Uh, so the country programs were managed from London and international staff were managing, uh, were running the country programs. But there was also something distinctive about SOS Sahel. So the project and program ideas, sorry, I've realized I've got the wrong screen. Just, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to get the right, uh, the right slide. No there worries. Okay, um, so um, yeah, what was distinctive about SOS Sahel, um, project and program ideas were very much driven from the ground. And this was the reality, not just the rhetoric. So small teams of international and national staff were given enormous scope to design projects and to experiment with community-based natural resource management. So building on what communities were already doing. Um, it was also very committed to action research and work closely with government, particularly at a technical level. So if we fast forward now to the end of the 1990s, um, in line with general trends in the sector, SOS Sahel UK was looking to decentralize its program management from the UK headquarters to country programs. But this process soon became something rather different and much more radical, which was triggered by a financial crisis, which of course is not unusual, sadly, for many small and medium-sized NGOs. So after attempting to merge with other international NGOs, and there's some lessons in the paper about that process of merger, 
um, SOS Sahel UK decided instead to transform its four country programs into national NGOs. And this happened long before the drive in the sector to localize and even before the term localization had been coined. So in many ways, it's to SOS Sahel's credit that it created opportunity out of crisis, but not without its challenges. And the full report um, is quite honest about um, the range of challenges and the difficulties of the process. And I'm going to highlight three which are on the screen now, uh, which are also valuable sources of learning. But what I'm sharing with you and what's in the report is based on wide ranging interviews with many people and I can see many of them are online now um, who are involved directly and indirectly in SOS Sahel's process of transformation. So the first challenge, transforming and localizing out of a crisis, which meant that it had to be done at speed with very little time or no time to strategize and plan. And the burden of that, of localizing fast, it fell hard on the shoulders of the Niger and Mali programs. So they were judged to be the best place to become national NGOs first and were operating in more favorable domestic political contexts at that time, but both faced a very a bumpy journey in solidifying their funding base, having had almost no time to plan. The second challenge um, was the pressure to hand over financial and contractual management from the UK, which meant that the approach was overly focused on building managerial capacity. And actually what was needed was rather more holistic approach to developing organizational capacity which would pay attention to issues like building reserves and establishing sound governance. And I sometimes fear that as a sector, we still very much tend to focus on managerial capacity in our capacity development efforts. Thirdly, um, the financial crisis meant transforming with limited resources and an imposed timetable. So as I've already said, this hit the West African country programs hardest but having talked to stakeholders who are at the heart of the process, a number of them said, with hindsight, it really needed to be a five to 10 year process, guided by achieving certain milestones rather than by an externally imposed timetable. And indeed, SOS Sahel Sudan and Ethiopia did benefit from a much longer period of accompaniment as they became national NGOs. So let me turn now to three of the success factors um, that contributed. There we go. Three of the success factors that contributed to the four country programs becoming national NGOs. And again, what can be learned? First of all, the commitment and values of the staff, international and national, who believe deeply in the organization's development approach and in locally led development. And it was their kind of commitment and, and being prepared to make this work, sometimes at quite really quite a high personal cost. But also key was the skill set of the UK team facilitating the process. And those were skills of listening, of mentoring, and of coaching. Second success factor was the strong national leadership. Um, in each case, the directors of the national NGOs were steeped in SOS Sahel's development approach, uh, but were also respected civil society leaders in their own right and were 
were leading um, a, um, SOS Sahel country program that was, was, was also embedded in civil society. Um, and I really want to emphasize that. I think the significance of strong national leadership in making this work, it really can't be overemphasized. Um, the third success factor was the process of relinquishing power at the UK end to, so that the UK became a partnership of equals initially with the national NGOs. And although this wasn't always an easy process, I think the commitment to relinquish power at the UK end, it had to be at the board level as well as at management level. It required an absolute belief in the process and the end goal. And it also required a continual kind of checking in and self-awareness at the UK end to capture any kind of reflexes to step in and take control, especially when national NGOs were facing difficulties. It was really remembering that responsibility for governments now sat with the boards of those national NGOs. But it also required the national NGOs to push back at times when they felt the UK was overstepping its role. Um, and interestingly, eventually the financial future of SOS Sahel UK became dependent on the national NGOs raising funds for the UK office. Um, so that was a fundamental shift in the nature of the relationship when the UK office was dependent particularly on Sudan and Ethiopia, SOS Sahel Sudan, Ethiopia, raising funds for the, for the UK office. And then finally in 2020, the UK office closed, recognizing that it had done its job. So just to conclude, um, um, I think a key feature of the SOS Sahel story of transformation is that it's been about creating national NGOs rooted in their respective civil societies. It's not been about creating a photocopy of the international NGO. So to some extent, the work of each national NGO has diverged appropriately since they became national NGOs. But in terms of the process of localizing, I wanna share with you the words of a former chief exec of SOS Sahel UK, who described listening carefully to the energy from each emerging national NGO and using that as the compass rather than a predefined image or outcome of what the national NGO should look like. So let me pause there and hand back to you, Wendy. Thank you very much, Margie. Very interesting and lots for us to think about. Um, before we move on, though, I'd like to I'd like us to hear from Saleh. Uh, so we're now going to play an in a video of uh, of Saleh, who's going to share some of his thoughts about challenges and opportunities. Uh, transformation of uh, international NGOs to national NGO. Uh, have a lot of challenges and uh, our experience in S transforming SO Sahel International the uh, UK to SO Sahel Sudan uh, we faced uh, challenges and uh, a lot of challenges but I can summarize into three or four main challenges. One of the challenge is how to keep uh, motivated national uh, staff who have been uh, working with the international NGO and been transferred to the national NGO, to, to the newborn organization. It is difficult to keep them motivated because the issue is related to the salaries and related to risk of uh, uncertainty of uh, getting funding and so on. So that is one of the biggest challenges I face. 
during the transformation, but I think we have uh, succeeded on keeping uh, staff motivated and until now, uh, 10 years, uh, uh, we have 10 staff from those who uh, being transferred from SO Sahel International to Sahel Sudan is still working with SO Sahel Sudan, motivated and working very well and they feel proud, proud that they are part of the transformation. Uh, the other challenge is uh, fundraising. As you know, national NGOs have a lot of difficulties on raising funds and uh, to be able to raise uh, funds you need to develop a profile for the for the national NGO that uh, reflecting the experience uh, uh, of, the, of the organization, on management, on implementing projects, and that profile can convince and give, uh, create trust between the organization and the donor to be funded. Uh, this is the difficulties of newly uh, established or registered NGOs, uh, NGO, is difficult to get a trust and to get a big uh, funding or big uh, donation from international NGO. Uh, we are lucky, I think this is come, will come later about the period of the tra transformation. I think the Social International UK played a bigger uh, role on building our capacity and or working with us simultaneously on a transitional uh, period until we are fully uh, stand uh, alone in our hand. My experience on nationalization of SO Sahel International uh, to SO Sahel Sudan as a national NGO was a great uh, experience with uh, a lot of uh, challenges and, uh, uh, and also a lot of opportunities. Uh, as I've been a leading on a leading position for this transformation, uh, I have felt uh, I have felt the experience of uh, new opportunity for the national NGOs, but also fear uh, of uh, uncertainties. It's some uh, and sometimes I feel uh, easier to just give up and go. Uh, sometimes I feel uh, tired, uh, but uh, uh, so much effort need to keep. Uh, your colleague uh, motivated and committed. Um, but the good and dynamic things is ever uh, achieve it without risk and fear. Um, when I see the benefit or an impact of SO Sahel uh, programs on communities and the communities are uh, happy managing it uh, successfully, I really feel proud and that is really uh, the uh, uh, worth of uh, the bravery decision that I have took to go through this process and to lead the organization in it. Um, a transformation uh, of an NGO, international NGOs to national NGOs is not an easy job and uh, it requires real uh, true commitment of uh, leadership who truly believe uh, that national NGOs uh, are key players on humanitarian and development process. 
thank you. Well, thank you, Sally and Absentia for uh, for those comments. I mean, raising some important points around how do you keep uh, national staff motivated? How do you continue to get that funding and develop those direct relationships with, with donors using your reputation and profile? And then just maintaining your own sort of energy and momentum in the face of many challenges. Um, I'd now like to turn to Fiera to hear about uh, his experience. Fiera, please. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, uh, Wendy, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege uh, for me to be one of the speakers at this grand event. And um, um, it is a day of joy and celebration also for some of us who have been uh, part of this, uh, uh, I mean, successful journey. Uh, please just allow me to sincerely thank Maggie for producing such an excellent report, which, uh, in my view, truly reflects uh, both the localization process and also the distinctive SOSL approach to development. I, I would like also to sincerely thank the SOSL UK Board of Trustees uh, for investing time, energy, and also finance. I mean to for the write-up of this SOSL history. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, in my intervention, I will be focusing on three key issues. First, I will be talking uh, the challenges that we faced in, uh, in SOSL Ethiopia and uh, when we transformed from uh, a country program of SOSL UK into a national organization. Uh, second, I will talk uh, what are some of the factors that has contributed to the success of the transformation from the Ethiopian uh, perspective. Uh, my third intervention will be how shifting the power and the decision making uh, was managed during the transformation process. Uh, if I start from uh, the factors that has uh, contributed to the success, uh, in my view, the commitment and the confidence of SOSL UK board and uh, uh, the UK leadership to African development was a, a crucial factor. Uh, for me, it takes a different moral compass and a strong uh, moral power to let power go, to let go power to an African-led um, national organization, to let go power, resources, assets, and accountability. Uh, uh, in this regard, I would like to sincerely salute SOSL UK for walking the talk and truly uh, living to their espoused value system uh, they, they uphold. And this is not a common practice uh, in, a, in, a, in a situation where we still see many international organizations who have not yet even decided to appoint a national country director. Uh, the other success factor uh, from our experience is uh, the collective teamwork from the SOSL UK Board of Trustees, uh, SOSL UK team and the leadership guided by wisdom and uh, uh, locally relevant set of skills. Uh, there is an old African proverb that says, if you want to go uh, uh, faster, go alone. 
if you want to go uh, further, go together. In this journey, we have decided to go further together, and as a result, we were able to, to go further. So this is one of the other, uh, in my view, is a crucial element for the success of the transformation process. Uh, the third factor uh, is what I, I call it the dividend of a proven past track record. Uh, what I mean here is the good image and the credibility uh, that SSL UK has built through proven track record, I mean, was instrumental to win, to win and to easily mobilize uh, the support of informed donors, government partners, international NGOs during the transformation and the beyond. Uh, so the dividend of a good track record has actually paid off for our success during the transformation and the beyond. Uh, with regard to the challenge, I think um, uh, Maggie has done most of the task and let me just reflect what are uh, specifically, I mean, uh, uh, relevant to uh, Ethiopian context. Uh, the major and acute challenge in our case was the political uh, context was extremely difficult and challenging to transform from international organization to a, a local organization. You know, unlike the present, uh, then there was no clear legal uh, framework as to how international NGOs are transformed to local. Uh, there, there were no clear, I mean, provisions on, on this subject in the then existing legal code governing the registration of the associations. So as uh, it's clearly reflected in, in Maggie's report, this is one of the reasons that uh, why the transformation process in Ethiopia has taken much longer than uh, our counterpart parties in, uh, in, in West Africa. Uh, the other challenge I would like to, to, to mention is uh, uh, the huge workload on a few senior national staff during the transformation process. Uh, managing transformation process uh, while simultaneously running an ongoing program with few staff was, was a, a real challenge. On the other hand, the transformation process was, as Maggie indicated, was under uh, under resourced, so it was like for us between the rock and the hard place. I would say. <laughs> um, I think the other challenge was uh, um, there was no credible, uh, I mean, previous local experience. I mean, to 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 learn from, and uh, it was like going through uncharted territory and through a steep learning curve. Uh, but uh, uh, now, uh, on the other hand. Um, uh, our localization experience have uh, uh, paved the way for other international NGOs who, who are uh, interested to uh, fo follow the suit. So far, uh, three international NGOs approached us to learn from our practical experience. So I think let me just end there and uh, uh, I'm happy to respond if there are any specific questions in relation to our transformation experience in the Ethiopian context later on in the Q&L time. Thank you very much, Wendy. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much, Fayera. Really interesting. And again, um, some, some challenges that I think apply across the board, but also some that are very specific to 
to Ethiopia. Thank you. Now, I, I want to move on to, to Mary. Now, Mary, the, the transition process must have impacted all areas of the organization's operations. And there must have been a major shift in how the organization was governed and funded. I mean, what was your experience of this process? And how did Sahel Echo respond to these changes? Um, thank you, Wendy. Um, as, Mar as Margie already mentioned, when we went through the transition, the situation in Mali was relatively favorable to the creation of a national NGO, and we decided to go for it and, and to go for it fairly relatively enthusiastically, um, although it was that or close at the time. Um, but please don't imagine that there was a sound legal framework and a rigorous system for operational oversight of national NGOs, far from it. Um, basically, we could have legally registered Sahel Echo as a national NGO with just three members, and those members could have been me and two other members of staff, or it could have been our relatives. So there was no requirement and certainly no legal framework for anything that resembled the British charity model uh, with a board of trustees. So the first point was that we had to impose, if you like, that, that model of good governance on the association that we created, which we did. And, um, you know, Sahel Echo staff cannot be members of the association. Uh, and there is an annual audit of the whole organization, including unrestricted funds, which might not sound astonishing to people in other countries, but that's not necessarily the case for every national NGO in Mali. And we're, we're categorized as a national NGO. Um, with hindsight, I, I also agree with the point that, that uh, Margie made. We did that, we imposed this governance, we, we put into place the, the board with these, these statutes that resembled as much as we could uh, the model of governance that uh, we aspired to at the time. Um, but we really didn't give enough attention to that governance process after everything had been transferred to, to Sahel Echo. We got support for strategic planning, we got support to set up a financial system, but not support to uh, accompany the operation of that new governance model. Um, there was no training and, it, and there was no support. It was just left to me and the board um, to work that out between us as best we could. And I think one of the points there is, I mean, normally a board would um, recruit the director of the NGO, but of course I was there and like it or not, I, they, that was part of the deal, if you like, that, that you know, part of the things that were transferred was me being transferred as um, going from country program director to uh, executive secretary. So for a little while, it, it was more me motivating, trying to motivate the board uh, rather than them managing and motivating me. But over time, um, and particularly after I left and uh, they were in a position where they had to recruit and manage a completely new uh, director for Sahil Echo, then the board you know, really stepped up and, and, and filled the, the, the role that they um, would have been expected of them throughout that, that whole process. So um, in terms of funding, just to talk about funding, um, I have to say, and again, that it echoes what Piera said, that it was the reputation achievements of SOS Sahel and the continuity of staff and projects that were the key to us uh, uh, continuing with projects and also getting new funding in the first few years, 
not any provision for good governance that we, we had in our statutes. Um, and as many, many national NGOs would know, um, the sort of, or small NGOs, in fact, uh, the difficulties that we face are, you know, project funding, funding project by project and having to manage those gaps between the projects if they're, if they're there. And then also a very, as an, an African NGO, very limited opportunity to raise unrestricted funding. Um, no network of individual supporters, very difficult to gain credibility to get funding from individual supporters. And when you're working in partnership with um, international organizations from whatever nationality, there's often, there is always that issue of, of how do you split the admin percentages? Not only are they small for everybody, but are, is your partner willing to uh, 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 split an admin percentage with you? And that is, has been and continues to be uh, quite a discussion, quite a difficult point in some of the partnerships that Sahileko has been part of. I think the factors in our favor, um, we're in a very strong position at the transfer. So we already had number of ongoing contracts and, and we've carried on with uh, SOS Sahel through to 2007, 2008 with EU and big lottery funding. Some partners, I mentioned IED accepted transferring their agreements from SOS Sahel to Saheleko. And then we began to develop new partnerships as Saheleko, starting with our friends, if you like, in the UK, uh, Triade, ITF, through contacts that SOS Sahel helped us help to set up or that we had before through those collaborations. And then gradually um, widening that, uh, widening those um, contacts. And I think one of the things is, uh, I mean, Pierre can perhaps correct me, but certainly it tended to be people asking us to join or building on relationships that we already have. It was very little like knocking on doors, cold calling, asking people to fund Saheleko. And then I think and finally, another really key to, to the success, ongoing success, was that at the end of that EU funding, um, SOS Sahel transferred to us uh, a share, our share of the, of the admin percentage, which actually gave us a really good lump sum uh, to set up as reserves. We've managed to keep, Sahileko has managed to keep that. It meant we could play with the big boys is what I always say. We could pre-finance actions. We didn't necessarily have to sack everybody every time a project finished. And it kept Sahileko going through the very difficult uh, 2020 when the start of a whole number of contracts was delayed and we were faced with about 10,000 euro of, of gap that we had to, to fill in order to keep the core team uh, in place. Um, and then more recently, Sahileko, uh, there are a number of funding opportunities now that Sahileko can bid as Sahileko, as a national NGO, and it's not just small amounts of money, it's, it's more substantial. So um, just to end on a positive note, in January, um, they were uh, uh, one of the awardees of the um, Africa Forest AFR 100 Terra Match. So they, these are opportunities that, that are interesting and substantial and open to national NGOs. So the landscape is shifting. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mary. No, really interesting. And I think those reflections on uh, getting that lump sum of funding uh, you know, is, is really important. The lack of core funding that uh, 
national NGOs often have. And it's a discussion that's very live today in a number of different fora. And as you say, the landscape is shifting, but it could shift a lot faster and, and a lot more in that direction. So I, I know we only have another 25 minutes or so, but I'd like to now ask people from the audience to respond to our panel's reflections. I'm gonna start actually with, um, I think said you said Hess, you've got your hand up. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Wendy. Um, yes. Uh, first, it's wonderful to see so many old friends I haven't seen for years. Uh, so really delighted to be here. Uh, and and also the I guess I've been very lucky. And I've worked with all four countries um, and all the country directors. Uh, and their colleagues um, when I was, uh, well, certainly with IID and also in a previous life. And I think what I've heard really echoes my, my, my experience. Um, and I guess I have four things I just want to say very quickly. Uh, and and, and um, one is seeing how SOSI, how implemented, um, in, implemented sub, sub, subsidiarity in practice actually made it work. So we heard about the devolution of the, of the central office to the national, but I think also seeing the national offices doing the same with local institutions and, and themselves strengthening local institutions at lower levels, uh, I think is you know, uh, um, really, really important, particularly in, in some of the areas where they've been working. And the role of a center and the role of the national offices in, in each of those cases was you know, very much guidance, providing a framework and not um, and not directive. Um, I think a second area which which sort of been echoed is, which is very unusual, I think, with many NGOs, is this long term commitment to a number of sort of geographies, um, not not chasing the projects, not not working on a project time frame, but raising money through the vehicle of a project to sort of knit together a program over 20, 25 years. And through that process, therefore being able to invest in local institutions and learning and so on. So I think that is a really, really strong factor of, um, of, um, of the work that's been done. The third, I think, is engaging with the power dynamics. Uh, a lot of NGOs are afraid to do that, uh, um, particularly international NGOs and engaging it at various levels between state and citizen, uh, between local government and local institutions, and also within citizens around gender issues, around, uh, around um, um, sort of minority groups and so on. And, and, and that has led to policy change. And I mean, I saw two, one in Niger with the sort of forest laws, and then in Mali with the, you know, the fantastic work that was done on the, um, the, um, code, the um, code pastoral. And uh, so effecting change where so much of that change is in fact about changing power dynamics. So that's the third one. And I think the final one, which we've heard you know, here is this very strong learning approach. Uh, it's sort of the, uh, the evolution uh, and doing that also at multiple levels. Uh, I think the center played a really key role when on one of the major programs that I worked with on the shared management of, of, um, of common property resources which worked across the four countries was looking at problems which each country was experiencing, but those countries didn't know that the others were also experiencing them and then actually designing a, uh, a um, regional program. And finally, I just want to say um, at IAD, we have learned so much 
from our, our relationship um, over this time and has been really important in informing some of the work that we've done uh, recently. So it's been a real privilege working with, um, you know, um, with you all. And I really look forward that we can sort of continue to do so in the future. Thank you. Thanks so much, uh, Seb. Really interesting observations um, from your experience. I'm, I'm gonna call on Jill Shepard next. And then I've got a list of, of hands. That I, and so if, if everybody could keep their remarks um, as short as possible, that would be brilliant. Jill, go ahead. Are you on mute, Jill? I think you are. Okay, sorry about that. That's um, okay. I just wanted to stress what a colossal impact SOSL has had on international forestry, more than perhaps people realize. When we started at the very beginning in the Sudan in 83-84, the, the, the project at Shendi, which was the first SOSL project, which was a project of um, planting shelter belts to keep rolling sand dunes away from the fields of farmers, was one of the very first community forestry projects anywhere in Africa. It was the first time that that had been done. And parallel with that was the fact that right from day one, women in those villages said, well, we want to do something too. We don't want to go and plant shelter belts. We want trees in our courtyards for shade, for fruit and so on. So from the very beginning, we had a men's project and a women's project in a conservative Muslim country. We had male extension officers and female extension officers male foresters and female foresters. And this was incredibly powerful. Donors such as FAO down in Khartoum would come up to look at the project to learn from it because community forestry was still such a very, very new idea, hardly practiced and mostly um, little bits of agroforestry, not really managing anything very substantial. Um, so I think that was very key. It was then extended out to other projects within the Sudan in SOSL, such as El Ain and so on. And from there, it influenced what went on in Niger and Mali and, and eventually Ethiopia. So it became, it became what SOSL began became mainstream. And um, it, I'm always proud and interested in a way that um, community forestry began as a dryland forestry reality. It was much, much later that uh, the management of tropical rainforests became a community activity as well. And that was sort of copied from the drylands and ultimately copied from the, from the SOS Sahel work. So I think the impact over the last 30, 40 years on forestry with local people has been beyond anything one can almost imagine. So great congratulations to everybody involved. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jill. Um, I'm going to call on a couple of other people who have their hands up and, and do feel free to ask the panel additional questions as well, um, not just uh, provide your comments. But um, let's, let me go to Nawal Osman next. Nawal? Yes, uh, hello, how are you? Uh, thanks, Wendy. I hope you are Wendy Fulton who worked with us in the 80s in Sudan. Yeah, she used to be my boss and save the children. And hello, Maggie, she was my colleague and also Karen Twine was my boss at Oxfam. And hello for the rest of participants. Uh, this localization is very interesting. 
and uh, so Sahel is one of the first organizations in Sudan to be localized. And I, I used to work with USAID and always the donors are viewing the localization and the local NGOs are lower capacity. They don't have capacity, so they don't give them the funds that they give it to the international organization. And I keep to fight for the local organization. And I told them that if, you, if they have the resources, they need it, they could do the work. And, 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 and now USAID and themselves and Samantha Power now is the administrator. She is really, uh, she is she's, is having a, this what they call it the fertility act, uh, fertility acts, and they are calling for localization of the organizations and the capacity, and to go local, down even to at the community level and to work. So now the localization is becoming a notion, and even for the donors themselves. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nawal, and uh, salam alaikum. It's been a long time. <laughs> Lovely to see you. And okay, well, I'd like to um, I'd like to move on now to Bukhari Bari. Bukhari. Well, uh, bonjour tout le monde. Hello, everybody. I'm Bukhari Bari. Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. On matin. Yes, yes. Voilà, moi je suis Bukhari Bari. So I'm Bukhari Bari. I am a member of Sahel Echo in Mali. And I wanted to uh, bear witness after observing what has been uh, uh, happening and after listening to the panelists. In fact, I, I think I agree, it is very rare to see an international organization be transformed in such a way from top to bottom. It's very rare, it's very exceptional. So the aspect I wanted to stress is that if we can succeed in Mali, I think that is something very important that I want to stress. It is that the team that was there, I, I, I was not part of the team at the beginning, but Marie and Mary and all her colleagues and Robert and, and so on, they, they had a good, great capacity of communication. And that's very important. And I, I joined the program when the transformation was starting to take place. And I took part in it and I was very impressed by the, the the language and the communication on the community local level at the time in Sahel, because uh, when you talk about what's happening in in, in Mali, uh, right away uh, we uh, know uh, we talk about pastoralism and and the concrete things that happen in in Mali, the geographical um, uh, factors. And uh, some people who are not close to each other started working together and worked very well uh, with the help of SOS Sahel. So it, I wanted to stress the fact that this experience of transformation, in my opinion, was in Mali, especially because uh, I'm, I was a member of the board of directors. Uh, it, it's a big success in Mali. Because when you talk about a, a non-governmental organization, 
uh, working for environment and ecology on a local and national level. It's, it's a very important sector. It's very important to work in this field. And it's important to have good communication with local communities and to uh, promote, if I dare say, maybe to change uh, some things to a certain public policies, because uh, we, we talk uh, RNA uh, here. So this became something that was recovered on, on the national level to help guide what we are doing. And it became something symbolic, uh, emblematic for our organization. And we talked about our, of the work we do in ecology with all the members of the community is very important. And it is, uh, we have to recognize this fantastic capability of the people who were there at the beginning because they communicated very clearly with the government, the local government and the national government, with the communities, and to integrate uh, the, the, the spirit of what we are doing. Because when you go to a, a local community, the Bagas go there, everybody knows him. So uh, I want to say that it was a challenge. It was very interesting. And my, my question now is to ask how, on the, uh, because this, we succeeded uh, to transform an international NGO into a local one, is this relation with the various organizations could be maintained and will there be something that will be able to place make to scale what we have done locally and benefit to other contexts and other country and i want to use this opportunity to salute all the members of the teams from other countries because we have the the, the right people who work well together and we can all work together Pierre, uh, for instance, is an example. Oh, how... Excuse me, I'm uh, sorry to interrupt. I'm, I might have to ask you to wind up your question just because we have a very little time. Alors, je de trouver yeah. les liens. Okay, so I want to uh, find the, the way to maintain links to learn on an international level so that these local experiences can be used in other countries. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to turn to our, our panelists, turn back to our panelists in a moment. There are lots and lots of comments, really interesting comments, as well as questions in the chat. And I know that Margie has been responding to some of those, uh, specifically around um, what has happened with SOS Now, what the different connections are. Um, but I wanted to really move back to our, our panelists because we have so little time. And maybe you could address Bukhari's question when you respond to this, because I think it, it, it's part of it. Basically, what, we, what I want to know, and I think what others would like to know, is what advice would you give to other organizations that are either decentralizing themselves as international NGOs, or are national regional organizations wanting to gain independence from international uh, NGOs? So I, let's start off, maybe we'll go um, backwards in order and we'll start with Mary. Yeah, uh, well, I think the two, the two main points that, that there is that, the, the issue about, you know, there needs to be some sort of longer term 
even if everything changes and legally you're separate organizations and you may be implementing contracts together, think about having some sort of ongoing, you might call it partnership around either around these issues like governance and learning. If, if the NGO, international NGO is continuing, then you know, think about that. And I think the other one is talk about the money. We were very polite and we never talked about the money. We never talked about reserves. We never addressed those hard issues. Yeah. And in the end, it all comes down, you know, it comes down to people, but it also all comes down to money. So talk about the money. Thanks, Mary. Um, Fayera, what are your thoughts on that? What advice yeah, would you give? Thank you, Wendy. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, my advice would be, I, I think for me, the context matters. And uh, uh, and one size doesn't fit all. Uh, that's what we have learned from this uh, uh, transformation process. Uh, so it, it is crucially important that the, the legal policy, political and institutional context of individual uh, countries determine the pace and the ultimate outcome of uh, the transformation process. And uh, this is one of our key lessons. So I, I would advise that radical transformation of this nature should start with a thorough understanding of uh, and an in-depth analysis of the context in which individual NGOs are operating. Uh, the other piece I would uh, like to add is also, you know, don't projectize transformation processes like, like this one and uh, put a definite time frame. And there must be an allowance for, you know, building up a contingency plan uh, and also try to uh, uh, follow an adaptive uh, management style to cater for any unforeseen circumstances in the course of the transformation process. So, uh, that's what I would like. And the other issue is, you know, I think we have to be prepared for the marathon run, not a sprinter run in the case of transformation of this nature, because it's a very lengthy process. Uh, I would say one of the success factors for in our case is the accompaniment support that SSR UK has given beyond our date of registration. Uh, investing in uh, building the institutional capacity of local organizations. So, uh, it's, a, it's a long process. We have to prepare for a long journey. Don't projectize it. And also take care of your context. Thank you. Thank you, Fire. Very wise words, I think. Um, and then finally, because we can't ask uh, Saleh directly, unfortunately, but I'm going to go back to Margie. Margie? Um, thank you, Wendy. I'm just going to say two things. And it's, to some extent, it's, it's emphasizing what's already be, um, been said. I think from the um, the kind of learning from the UK end, in other words, from the from the whatever, whether it's Northern International, wherever it might be, it's um, it has to be value driven, and it has to be an absolutely wholehearted commitment to to that kind of transformation. And I think there was something important which happened at the UK end um, as the transformation which was was going on, which was in a sense and I was a, a trustee at this point, was checking each other. And I remember board meetings where, you know, we'd hear about a problem that was happening and, and one trustee might kind of want to step in and say, well, can we not help in this way and that? And, and others maybe had to say, it's not our role anymore. So there was something about really, um, yeah, checking on each other to make sure that we kept following that commitment and those values. And then um, 
the other thing I want to mention, which I know I've already said, but I just really want to emphasize it again, is national leadership. Um, and we've you've heard from the from the leaders um, on this panel, and they won't say it themselves. So let me say it that um, their leadership has been absolutely fundamental to to the success. Uh, Wendy, I think you're on mute. I knew I had to do it at least once during the uh, during the event. <laughs> at least it was at the end. Um, I, what I was starting to say was that we have uh, only a few minutes now before we have to close, and I realize that there are many, many comments, really interesting comments and and questions uh, in the chat. And I hope that you've all had a chance to look at those. And I know Margie that you. Uh, in particular, I think have been trying to respond to to some of those in the chat, but I apologize that we haven't been able to get to them all. It's difficult to cover everything within an hour, but I think that you will get the answers to quite a few of your questions. If you have a look at the report, if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, and the report is available on the HPN website, I believe the links will be posted in the chat by uh, Nasheen, my colleague. And it's available at the moment in both English and French, and we are we have an Arabic uh, translation in the works, which should be available within the next few weeks. So I hope you'll have a chance to look at the the report. And as usual, we always welcome your your continued feedback, and you can send that to us directly or through the HPN website. But I'm I'm afraid that's really all we have time for today. And I'd like to thank all of our panelists and all of you for joining us. It's great to see so many of your, your faces, to, see, to have so many comments and to know how many people are still engaged on these issues. And as, as Nawal pointed out, a number of us have been around for a very long time. <laughs> and I think we're, you know, we continue to maintain our enthusiasm and our interest in these topics. I know my, uh, our CEO here at, uh, ODI, Sara Pantoliano has been uh, participating in the chat here and in the meeting, and she was also an SOL, SOSL trustee um, and is, is, was really interested to see this uh, project take off. So as I said, have a look at the report and the recording of this video, and I think you can access it in both French and English, will be available online on the ODI website within a, a few days. So again, thanks to all of you and have a good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much.